Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Jerry Cantrell. The nine-time Grammy nominee is best known as the founder, lead guitarist, co-lead vocalist, and primary songwriter of the hard rock band Alice in Chains. Signing with Columbia Records in 1989, the Seattle-based band got lumped into the grunge explosion of the early 1990s when Cantrell penned classics such as Man in the Box, Wood, Rooster, and Down in a Hole took over MTV and Billboard's mainstream rock chart. But Alice in Chains was always about more than Seattle hysteria. By the middle of the decade, they'd released three multi-platinum selling studio albums, Facelift, Dirt, and the self-titled Alice in Chains, as well as three EPs, including Jar of Flies, which went triple platinum and became the first EP in history to top the Billboard 200. A string of top ten singles, including No Excuses, I Stay Away, Grind, Heaven Beside You, and Again, established the band as rock radio mainstays. Plagued by struggles with addiction, Alice in Chains took a hiatus from live performances before regrouping in the spring of 1996 for an appearance on MTV Unplugged. The subsequent album hit the top five on the Billboard 200 and was certified platinum. That same year, the band found themselves on another extended hiatus, leading to the release of Cantrell's debut solo album, Boggy Depot, in 1998. The death of Alice in Chains singer Lane Staley in 2002 could have meant the end of the band, but they eventually regrouped and released the gold-selling Black Gives Way to Blue in 2009 and the follow-up album The Devil Put Dinosaurs Here. Both releases hit the top five. Alice in Chains has continued to release new music as recently as 2018's Rainier Fog album, and the band has now sold more than 30 million records worldwide. In addition to his first solo release, Cantrell put out the album Degradation Trip Volumes 1 and 2 in 2002. His most recent release, the critically acclaimed Brighton, is his first solo record in almost two decades. Named among Guitar World Magazine's 100 Greatest Guitarists of All Time, Jerry is also a formidable songwriter. More than 20 of his compositions, both with Allison Chains and as a solo artist, have hit the top 10 on the Billboard Rock Chart. Part 1 well, Scott, every now and then we'll open up an episode by saying this is a very special episode of Songcraft. Indeed. And when I say that, I don't mean to give the impression that occasionally we have non-special episodes of Songcraft. We I mean, only do special episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're all our children. We love them all equally. Right. Um, but in different ways. In different ways, exactly. Yeah. And today is one that we just maybe love a little more different in a more better different way <laughs> than some of the other ones. No, but th today uh, we're speaking to someone who is kind of a part of our formative years, somebody that we kind of grew up on. That's right. Mr. Fred Rogers. Um, uh, I've got got the Ouija board and the candles. We're going to have a wow. seance. I don't uh, know if seances and Ouija boards go together, but... Um, I don't either. And I, I, I didn't know if you called up like nice guys on a Ouija board. I thought is, it was more like scary uh, stuff. This is not the Fred Rogers episode, is it? No, it's not the Fred Rogers episode. It's, this is the Jerry Cantrell episode. This is the Jerry Cantrell episode. I'm sorry. I totally blew the Fred Rogers reveal. Uh, stay tuned. Yeah. Super glad you brought that, though. Very special episode. Sure, we could have a blast with that anyway. <laughs> um, no, we're talking about Jerry Cantrell. Um, guitarist, composer, singer, um, visionary. Yeah. 
um, from Alice in Chains, yeah. uh, the mighty Alice in Chains. And for us, I mean, gosh, man, you and I both turned 16 in 1991. I mean, it, it's hard to be more sort of like ripe yeah. for that era of music than we were at that moment. Just getting our driver's license, right. roll the yeah. window down and blast that stuff. Yeah. It's weird that we're both still 35 when we were <laughs> no, how did 16 that happen? at that time. Yeah. Um, I think one of the interesting things about the grunge movement and look, there's a whole lot of like hype about grunge and you know, you had the movie singles, which was like this huge touchstone, but it kind of got out of hand where it blew up, where it was like, you know, uh, everybody's talking about grunge and any band that lived in Seattle for three weeks could get a record deal on a major label. Yeah. Like it got crazy. And bands stupid. didn't really want that label at the time. Right. Like, right. Don't, don't paint us with that. Yeah. But. We want to become successful, but we don't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's, what's interesting is when you look back from the perspective, um, of today versus the time, um, today there's this sense that like, Oh, all the grunge bands were kind of buddies and, mm. Um, all of that was sort of like one movement. Yeah. Uh, I remember really not being that interested in Nirvana, to be honest. Mm. I was super into Pearl Jam. And I remember there was a time you were kind of like a Pearl Jam or a Nirvana person. Yeah, it was almost like, well, the same thing kind of happened with like Guns N' Roses and Def Leppard in, in the years prior. <laughs> right. Where you had to kind of pick allegiances. Yeah, and I was Guns N' Roses. Well, Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain had this sort of perceived beef. Right. Which I think in retrospect was a little overblown. Yeah, yeah. But you kind of had to take sides. Right, yeah. You had to take sides. Yeah. And for me, I think that, um, like, there was something about Alice in Chains and Soundgarden um, and Pearl Jam to a lesser degree, but they all kind of like held on a little bit more to the kind of metal elements mm, uh, versus right. the punk elements. Right. I think Nirvana kind of drew from that kind of punk well more than some of the other Seattle bands. And I was like a metal kid, you know, right. I loved Guns N' Roses. I loved Def Leppard. I loved White Snake. I love, right. you know, that was the stuff that I kind of grew up on. And so it was a natural progression into grunge. So I always kind of resonated with the Alice in Chains thing because I recognized the metal elements, the hard rock elements, you know, some of those things that that became like my own development as someone who was interested in music. You know, one of the things about that era and about the way that music kind of hit culture that's interesting to me is that they sort of found a way to kind of commercialize darkness Hmm. and the the tones were dark i mean the guitars were sludgy sounding and they were minor keys and you say what's your new single called it's called buried alive that sounds great that's perfect for drive time radio (laughs) you know and which which doesn't make quite as much sense now but at the moment i think even sort of like just dysfunction was kind of commercialized yeah and we liked these songs about being trapped yeah and about being confused yeah and about it was for being a teenager it makes all the sense in the world yeah there's uh this is not a, a paid plug i just happened to be <laughs> reading this book um by chuck klosterman called the 90s yeah. um and it's a new book and i think chuck klosterman's a great writer he he's right he got well. to it before ken burns I <laughs> exactly <laughs> two very different types of uh of <laughs> cultural course, observers yeah. um but chuck is like a great cultural critic and um I've loved his stuff for years, but uh, I've just started reading the book and he's talking about kind of like the zeitgeist of the 90s and how unique it is. He talks about reality bites right. um, and how that movie only makes sense to Gen Xers and, and how Ethan Hawke is kind of the hero because he doesn't care about anything. And there's a line <laughs> in the movie where he says something about it's not my job to save the world. And he's like, if you showed that to teenagers today, this guy would be the villain. Wow. Of the movie. Like it's hard for people to understand how that sort of cynicism and pessimism was actually popular right. <laughs> as That's part true. of pop culture. Um, a day in the life of Songcraft. 
So not surprisingly, Chuck Klosterman talks about Nirvana's Nevermind, which sort of opened the floodgates of this whole you right. know, craze. Um, and he's talking about the lyrics and how the lyrics don't really like technically, literally necessarily make sense, but how they kind of almost make sense. And he's got this great line. He has such a great way of, of boiling things down to the essence, but he's talking about the lyrics of Smells Like Teen Spirit. He says, it was a version of nothing so close to something it accidentally became everything. Wow. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> kind of the summation of the 90s. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and just sort of like a, a focus on the minutia of emotion. Well, I mean, isn't that perfect for an era that kind of gave us Seinfeld? Right. Which was a show about nothing and right. became, you know, the most famous show became of everything. all time at the time. Uh, I think, it, and and it sort of set us up for whatever now is, <laughs> media-wise <laughs> right. and culture-wise and music-wise. Yeah. I'm not sure what now is, but we passed through this sort of age of like, you know, cynicism yeah. and this age of, of sarcasm kind of becoming a part of the way we talked and the way we put things out there. And, and this sort of look into the darkness of the human heart, right. the annoyance of just being a human, yeah. um, songs about being bored, <laughs> things like that. You know, right. you, like Green Day was writing songs about boredom right. and they were becoming radio hits. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it needed to happen. I yeah. think it was sort yeah. of like this release for everybody that you didn't feel like you had to write a song about something, uh, you know, that felt powerful or that yeah. felt big. Right. It could just feel human. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great way to put it. And I think that the bands that have survived that era. Um, and really I would say Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam at this point are the yeah. bands who have survived that era, but they survived that era by staying in touch with what's humanly relatable rather than staying in like one place. Right. Um, and you know, you look at a guy like Jerry Cantrell or, you know, Eddie Vedder and, and Pearl Jam, it's like they have continued to write about reality and, and, you know, they're not still writing the same type of songs that they were writing in that era. Like right. it wouldn't work for somebody right. who's had the life experiences that they've had now. Um, but they've managed to kind of keep that audience and grow and mature with the audience yeah. so that, you know, you still see Alice in Chains or Pearl Jam today playing to huge uh, venues, you know, yeah. and there's still that appeal there. And I think there's still a, a universality of what they did that appeals to now, even to the kids of, you know, folks who are, are our age who are now having kids come up, become teenagers. Um, and so it's, it's cool to see how, what kind of became like a ton of hype. Yeah. Um, the, the cream rose to the top and, and, and continued on, you know? And I think some of that may be just sort of like the effect of honesty. These yeah. bands were yeah. honest at the time. And so you never found out 20 years later, Oh, right. that's not what we thought it was. And this right, band right. was just put together by the label or that, you know, right, right. That, that it was some sort of uh Millie Vanilli slash monkeys type situation. <laughs> right. Um, these bands were honest with us. And I think, you know, fans still appreciate that. And still, okay, now, now what are you going to be honest with me about in this era? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that's cool about a guy like Jerry Cantrell is when you really start digging in, you see how many influences he has drawn from over the course of his career yeah. and uh, how many things, you know, that he has, uh, gotten inspiration from that certainly go far beyond what people might think they know about Alice in Chains if they're just kind of maybe aware of some of the bigger radio hits right. that, um, you know, there's a richness uh, to to what he does. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I think we're in one of those, you know, we have these ebbs and flow periods where what's popular on Top 40 Radio sometimes is rock and right. sometimes not. And right now we're kind of not in a guitar-driven rock era in that regard. Um, but it is such an important, uh, tradition, I think in 
you know, popular music to just yeah. kind of keep that rock thing alive. And the people who do it well are the people who have absorbed uh, like all those influences and are able to to keep doing things that are interesting and unique. Well, and since there's not just a giant explosion of new rock bands on the scene, thank God guys like Jerry are still making music. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, man, enough of us yakking. Let's rock. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Part two. Once again, our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Jerry Cantrell, the founder, lead guitarist, co-lead vocalist, and primary songwriter of Alice in Chains. The nine-time Grammy nominee has written more than 20 top 10 hits on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Chart, has sold more than 30 million albums worldwide, and was named one of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time by Guitar World magazine. His latest solo release is the critically acclaimed Brighton. Jerry, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Your latest solo album is called Brighton, and it is the first solo record that you have done in 19 years, which is quite a break between solo albums. You've obviously been doing uh, projects with Alice in Chains. You've done some soundtrack work. You've done some, you know, different things here and there. But in terms of a complete solo album you know we've been waiting a while so would love to hear a bit about how this project came together and why now was the time to to kind of come back around and and revisit a solo project yeah well i mean you know my uh my my focus you know has been since we started the band uh the band <laughs> i mean yeah. so uh i have i i've been fortunate to, to uh be able to make some uh music outside of the band uh in in times where where i had the time to do it so uh at the end of uh at the end of uh the rainier frog tour uh we were kind of winding down and uh you know we we generally we generally take a little time off after a after a uh, album cycle so i thought it would i just started thinking that would be a be fun to do a record and and uh my buddy uh tyler uh bates uh uh, and I started talking about making a record and, uh, uh, we, uh, we kind of put our, put our heads together, uh, and, uh, you know, we, I called up Joe, Joe Barisi and, uh, my longtime engineer, Paul Figueroa. And between the four of us, we just started kind of plotting and planning and, and, uh, uh, writing and went through a demo process and, uh, uh, you know, we got, we got most of the record recorded in March, uh, and then of course COVID hit. So that kind of threw, yeah. threw my schedule off a bit, but, uh, okay. um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fun working. Uh, it's always fun making music, you know, it's, it's a, it's a worthy, it's a worthy challenge, you know, uh, I, 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 I enjoy doing things that are, that are, uh, you know, it's not that are that are that are difficult and and uh, 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 lucky enough to have made a career out of doing that. And uh, uh, working outside the band is is kind of uh, you know both both uh, you know uh, scary and also kind of freeing because mm -hmm. you know you're used to you're used to how things go inside the band, and that's a very warm and welcoming environment and you know what you can depend on. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, but it's kind of exciting sometimes to get out of your comfort zone. Hmm. And, uh, so working with other musicians and making, 
making um, music outside of what you're uh, what you're used to and where you feel the safest uh, yeah. is it is an extra challenge, you know. You know, listening to this new record is is fun because there are elements that I hear that I'm like, oh yeah, that's the sound that I've come to expect. You know, things that are you know just kind of consistent with the harmonic elements that I'm used to from you. And then there's some things that I was kind of like, oh, there's there's a more of like a rootsy element to some of the stuff than I'd heard before, like more prominent slide guitar. You know, the acoustics are pretty up in the mix. I heard some organ and things like that. Are there different things that you've been listening to lately that have been informing some of those sonic choices? I think the I think the instrumentation is probably the 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 thing that 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 makes a real big difference and the songs kind of are they're they're written in a way and they're really you know they're acoustic based which is not really that abnormal for us uh you know we've been we've been uh doing acoustic centric music uh since sap you know since 91 so uh I'm I'm really thankful that that uh, that we took the chance to do that so early in our career after one rock album, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? right. And uh, uh, not only not only for Alice but for myself as well, uh, it kind of widened the lens and was uh, didn't we didn't get pegged into a box. So uh, we took a we took a chance to to uh, to you know explore some territory super early in in our career and and people liked it you know and uh so that that basically uh there's no real boundaries you know put yeah. on us uh, other than other than what we put on ourselves i guess so yeah. uh um but the instrument instrumentation is is cool I, I i haven't done a record that's that uh that has keys and uh uh pedal steel uh so prominent uh, yeah. in the mix so it was cool to use a couple instruments for like a main ingredient you know uh yeah. Uh, that that I haven't before, but that's the cool thing about records, and and uh, and you kind of go where you you go where it wants to go. Uh, the material that I was coming up with seemed to you know loosely kind of uh, call for those those elements to be put in there, and yeah. uh, um, you know through through Tyler and Fig, uh, that's how we uh, you know they're uh, Tyler's good buddies with Michael Roseon and. And Paul Figueroa is good buddies with Vincent Jones on keys, and and Jordan Lewis as well uh, from uh, from Tyler. But uh, uh, we called up some buddies, and and uh, they came in and nailed it. Yeah. Know? Well, in terms of those kind of rootsier influences that Paul mentioned, there's there's a little three song run there with Prism of Doubt and Black Hearts and Evil Done and Siren Song, where you've got the pedal steel that you mentioned, which is is pretty prominent. I want to feel something. I think some kind of country-ish influences on your first solo album, Buggy Depot. And, you know, I'm curious when somebody is sort of identified with 
the rock field or R&B field or wherever you might happen to kind of live, um, it's always interesting to, to understand what other kind of influences have shaped that person's songwriting. And even though you're, you know, really considered a, a rock guy, I'm, I'm curious if country music in any way has, has influenced um, your songwriting sensibilities. Yeah, of course. I mean, country songwriting is is about as economical as you can get. You know, super short, very to the uh, very to the point. Uh, you know, uh, there's you know, it's just two or three minutes that you got to to get your uh, get your uh, idea across. <laughs> you know, and yeah. and I also like the storytelling part of that. But country and blues is basically rock and roll. You know, mm. you put those together, and right. uh, and uh, you know, um, I've, I've I've never really. Uh, you know, we we've always kind of chafed at trying to uh, at 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 anyone's attempt to put us into a box and say we're one thing. I mean, we've we've from the beginning we've been called like you know uh, eight different things. You know, metal, hard rock, alternative, grunge. You know, uh, go down the go down <laughs> go right. down the list, and then sometimes they flip back. So we're all of those things. And uh, uh, you know, I, I was raised. I was raised by a couple of country music fans in my household. Uh, you know, I'm also an army brat. So, uh, you know, the neighborhoods and the schools I went to were really multicultural, you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I grew up listening to a lot of blues and R and B and soul and, and, uh, 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 as well as country and rock and roll. And, and, uh, even like, you know, some, you know, waltz and, uh, jazz and big band stuff uh, through my grandmother you know that she's who used to have like uh you know lawrence welk on the tv all the time yeah. <laughs> like, right. you know good music is good music yeah. and and uh i was just watching i got through two episodes of that uh beatles doc documentary get mm. back last night and and uh you know it was just a, just amazing to to revisit like how potent a force those guys were and and and, and what they did in in like six years and also all of the different influences that they that they infused into their music and and they're all those influences i just mentioned you know yeah. uh super varied you know and uh and and you're trying to you're trying to meld that into your own voice the cool the cool thing of it is and uh, there was a scene where mccartney's at the piano and he's talking about the 88 keys and he's like it's all there yeah there's there's no more, you know it's all right there you know like every song that it was ever written or will be written is right there there's no, nothing off the edges it's right here so <laughs> so uh that's kind of the fun thing is putting together combinations of stuff and and you can draw from uh draw from all sorts of great ideas from from uh different artists different styles and uh uh i think the fun part of songwriting is is not knowing where you're going at all just starting off and and uh and seeing where the trip takes you you know all right i i'm gonna try really hard to stay focused now because that beatles doc but that's the most amazing thing that i've seen maybe ever and i'm going to challenge my own lack of focus now um because i'm also a huge elton john fan and uh, scott has he's allotted me a a few minutes to talk (laughs) about elton john in this um, in this interview before we, you know, get back to your originals. But, you know, when I see someone do an Elton John cover on a record, I perk up immediately. And when I see somebody do a deep cut cover from the Madman Across the Water record, I go, wow, what's happening here? And when I see you do the song Goodbye, I, I was just like, wow. How, you know, who found themselves inside of that song? 
you know, because that's such that's such a unique song. It's a song yep. that you could only close an album with. You can't possibly do another song after it. Uh, and I listen yeah, you to can't it. Start- Bye. No, no, you can't even put it like halfway through the record. That'd be a pretty short record. And it and it ends with the lines, you know, I'll waste away, I'll waste away. It's like, what song are you going to sing after that? But you know, there's something about the the minor key quality of it, about what the the melodies do, that you just fit into that song perfectly. So I I'd love to know about the choice of that song and about you know Elton and has he been a, an influence on you over the course of your career? Yeah, he was one of my earliest influences as far as. Uh, you know, uh, somebody that, that, uh, I guess, I, uh, I guess I woke up to, uh, with a lot, you know, there's a handful of other, other artists, but, but where, where, you know, there, I think there's a period in, in everyone's lives where you, you know, when you're starting to form your identity or whatever, and music starts to become, uh, important to, to you, yeah. you know, and, uh, and you, you, uh, it's a cool, it's a cool journey that you share with your friends and other people and, and, uh, you know, as you go through life, maybe your tastes change or you get turned on to things or you, you go back to the old classics that you first, that you first kind of like really dug or whatever. And, you know, Elton for me, uh, like I say, it was you know, one of the first artists where I actually was able to make the connection of like, man, this is really cool. Mm. And, and, uh, I, I really like what this guy and his band are doing and, uh, and the idea of like, maybe I could do that. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to try to do that. And, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, that particular song, we did a couple of live shows in, uh, in the middle of the writing process of the record here in LA uh, a few years ago. And, and we closed both nights with that. And, uh, I don't know, it's a song I, I, I dig, I dig things. Of course I dig all the hits, but, but it's just really potent. Mm. And, uh, uh, it's really emotional, and uh, as you say, it's a great closer. And I had eight songs that I thought fit together as a as an album, as a body of work. And then I had five or six uh, other songs that felt like a different record, you know. And uh, so I couldn't really draw from them. And and I just I was talking to Tyler and Fig, uh, like I think we need one more song, you know. And uh, we got to write another song. And uh, uh, Tyler suggested. We, uh, recording goodbye because we are already uh, performed it a couple of times and and it fit with my voice because uh, you know and and it, and it also uh, fit with the the body of work that's on the record you yeah. know so yeah. uh, uh, we we cut it really quick it was the last thing we recorded huh. for the record and it, and it and it closes this record which kind of oddly enough is uh is a nine song record and it closes this record and it's off my one of my favorite album uh, Elton albums, uh, Madman Across the Water, you know, and sits in the same spot. So, yeah, that's so great. For I am a mirror, I can reflect the moon, I will write songs for you, I'll be your silver spoon. I'm sorry. Turn back a page, I waste away. 
I've read that you were involved uh, in the choir when you were in high school and also involved in um, in plays and that kind of thing, which obviously exposed you to um, music that maybe not all kids pay attention to, you know, in terms of whether it be choral music or whether you're doing a, a musical and you're learning some of those type of classic songs. would love to hear a bit about what your experiences in that setting helped you learn about things like melody and, and harmony and how songs are actually put together. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a combo of, of things, you know, it's, uh, uh, I grew up in a pretty musical household, you know, most, most of the, most of the family members on my mother's side had, had at least been in choir or a band or, or, or continued to play. My mother and aunt both had, uh, uh, organs, uh, in the living room and, and, uh, you know, she'd come back, she'd come home after work and she'd always go in there and, and bust out some tunes for an hour or two, you know, some sheep music and stuff. And, and, uh, so, uh, you know, there's that. And then I had some really great teachers in school, uh, in junior high and high school, uh, who were really supportive. And, and as you say, um, and we were talking about earlier, uh, there's a real diverse palette of stuff that I was exposed to. And, uh, you know, from my mother, from teachers, from friends, from radio, uh, and uh, and and actually, you know, my first stage experience was was not with a guitar in my hands. It was, you know, singing singing musicals and stuff and doing plays on the stage. So, mm. so uh, that's a lot of different things to draw from that basically uh, point you in a point you in a direction of being a performer and a writer. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I had all of those those experiences and and. You know, like any anybody that, that ends up forming a band, uh, you find yourself, uh, you know, your bandmates and the people that you hang out with, uh, they've, they've had similar experiences, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, that was the case with the guys in the, the guys in Alice as well. And, uh, you know, you, you start off kind of emulating people that you're kind of musically turned on by, and uh, at some point you you find yourself, you know, and yeah. you find your own voice in that. And then you're, uh, then, then you're off to the races. You know, it's, that's really true. You, what you're talking about, you sort of start with these influences and, and then you sort of find your own voice along the way. And, and one of the things in sort of listening to the breadth of your material that I'm struck by is there, there is a harmonic quality and I, and I literally mean in the harmonies, <laughs> Um, and all the music that you put out, there's like an, an atonality at moments, times where the harmonies don't follow each other, you know, in total symmetry. And I yep. don't think that I can necessarily find where that comes from in like a pile of influences. You know, when I listen to, you know, I grew up on bands like the Black Crows and I, you know, you can hear like, oh, that, that's the Keith Richards Bible that they're that they're reading from, you know, when they're putting that stuff together. And when I hear what what you've always done with harmony, um, I'm like, man, where does that come from? What? What were you listening to that 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 brought that about? Yeah, well, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's what what uh, maybe that's part of uh, part of my musical voice, and 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 every every person has a unique one, you know. And I I also uh, come from a from a group of guys who who uh, you know we we all we all kind of felt compelled to go down that particular road. You know, we were all interested in, in those kind of things, things that were, were a blending of, 
of major and minor of of uh, we were uh, we we're big fans of harmony you know we were we were fans of the beatles and other bands where there was more than one voice and more than one writer you know yeah. and uh uh and also drew from multiple influences you know and uh um you know it's cool it, it's it still still trips me out that uh you know i don't have a I'm 55 years old and I still don't have a day job, so <laughs> a regular job. So uh, that blows me away. Uh, you know uh, that that I'm able to still do this and that, and that it actually is my job and yeah. and, uh, and that people care about it. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's that, I guess that's the probably even the bigger thing uh, that you're able to able to create something that means a great deal to you. You know, uh, yeah. emotionally and and uh the effort uh and 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 the total fucking gamble of like you know it's not like something you do to uh that's got a super high success rate (laughs) (laughs) and uh you took you took the shot you you took the journey with 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 your bros and and uh somewhere along the line you found you found your own voice and uh and and that was good enough for us. And then the the bonus of that is you find an audience that it speaks to as well. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, in terms of finding that audience, I think uh, for guys like me and Paul, we definitely sat up and took notice when Man in the Box started playing on MTV. had such a um, unique sonic quality to it. It had that talk box guitar thing. And, you know, you, there's always the song and then there's the production. And I think for um, some people, those are, are separate things. And uh, but sometimes writers kind of write with a certain aesthetic in mind or they're almost kind of building you know, the, the sound of the song in their head, even as they're creating the song itself. I'm curious for you, um, when you are writing, are you kind of writing and laying down tracks and guitar parts at the same time? Or are you more somebody who goes and writes a song and then thinks about what the, uh, delivery of that song in terms of production will be later on? You can do it either way, but I, I, I do tend to, I do tend to, uh, to keep, you know, keep a record, you know, through the demo process, you know, you're, you're trying to put what you think needs to be there. And that doesn't always end up being the case at the very end, but, uh, but a lot of times like an effect or, or the way, you know, the, the, the way that it sounds or, or maybe the, maybe the vocal is, has, is verbed out in a certain way that creates a vibe. You'll, you'll, you'll definitely carry those to the next level, you know? Hmm. Um, and then there's other parts where you know you don't want to get demoitis and you want to be open to other things uh, and and kind of let some stuff happen. What what I do is I try to I try to follow an idea to to the absolute end uh, of where I can take it, uh, and then I stop a little bit short. You know, mm-hmm. I stop a little bit short so that you can still have that kind of live uh, live element and be open to something happening in the studio. And it's really really uh another part i think uh 
being a songwriter, being a being a musician, or being part of a band is one thing, but the but a studio the studio is an is an instrument too, and and you know any any artist will tell you that, and like uh, you know uh, I, I've always been really interested in in uh, in the production and recording uh, uh, you know segment of of making music come to life and you can use the studio like a like an instrument as well and uh i'm a real big fan of uh messing around with effects different guitars uh layering you know layering creating a landscape uh um and and also the use of space you know not trying to fill every single measure and beat with something going on you know space is a really powerful thing and uh and alice and 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 then my my writing I was trying to, uh, you know, boil it down to its simplest, you know, simplest form, and and uh, the additions that you do make, uh, you know, uh, have to be not at the expense of that space, you know. You know, uh, speaking of space and that type of thing, one of the things that I really am enjoying about your new album is, you know, there are times when you'll hear like an instrumental intro, and then the band will just jump right in, and there are times when you'll let that intro go twice. And you'll kind of let that moment happen musically. It's not just about, let me get to the hook, let me get to the vocal. And it doesn't sound mm-hmm. like you're sort of desperate to get to the chorus. It sounds like you're letting the song live, you know? Yeah. And those are things... Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit more... We were speaking of country music and the economics of that. And yeah. like it's kind of boiled down to its, to, its, uh, uh, to its kind of basic form. You know, I'm not a... I'm not opposed to writing a seven, eight minute, you know, uh, odyssey and I've done them, uh, you know, rooster being, being a prime example of an early one. You know, you, you mentioned Rooster, and it's 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 interesting to sort of compare not songs necessarily, but approaches because you know I feel like you're in a moment now where you can kind of call your shots, and this is the record I want to make, and and I would imagine you know in the early to mid '90s when you're in the midst of this sort of whirlwind, and there's all these you know well the radio team wants you to do this and the label says this and like MTV <laughs> won't play unless you do this. 
how do you how did you maintain that kind of sense of well this is what I want for the song how did you maintain that in the midst of all that well I mean we we've been really lucky uh, uh, because we, we uh, we've been lucky in the fact that we we had a really big first record and we had a few you know we had a few uh, we had a few uh, butting head sessions with the with the record company like any artist does especially early on you know and like hey you know like we're keeping our publishing no well then we're not going to sign you okay then fuck off and see you later <laughs> and then a couple yeah. months later they come back you know and uh went through a couple rounds of that that was important we yeah. kept their publishing to uh just just uh direction uh you know no record company people in the studio none wow. Uh, well, we got to have people in there, blah, 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 you know, this and that. No, no, you're not going to do that. We got the music covered. You know, you, you, you pick your battles, and, we, and the early battles that we picked and we won on uh, paid off because the record was fucking huge, you yeah. know. And uh, from that point on, uh, it's just like, hey, refer, to, uh, refer to, to line one of paragraph A. We did it our way, <laughs> and it works. And until we're wrong, you don't get to say anything. And, and uh, uh you know, after after facelift, we really didn't uh, all all of the things that we had fought for uh, to uh, kind of keep the keep the control of the band and and how we wanted to do things, including choices of you know like Man in the Box. You know, they didn't want that for the first single. It's too slow. It's too sludgy. I'm like this, and, and we're like, this is the song. Trust us. You know, this is yeah. what we're putting out. You know, yeah. And uh, and and so we had some we had some some calls early on uh that went our way and they went our way in a big way so uh i didn't really have anything to say after that you know? yeah wow well it's cool i'm sure the label took credit at the end of the day anyway so <laughs> oh yeah oh no no, no. we always loved it was that all their song. idea man like, no you yeah. didn't dude. <laughs> you did not you did That's not funny. want it yeah I, I i still have conversations with some of those some of those folks from the label and it's funny how uh the the revisionist history that happens yeah <laughs> right <Yep>. right <laughs> i guess the the moral to that is is what do you lose you know what do you lose by sticking to your guns and 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 doing what feels right to you you mm. know you're gonna make some you're gonna make a lot of mistakes along the way that's just part of life and and, and mistakes are how you learn you know um but uh you know if you're if you're collectively if you're collectively feeling a certain way, it's probably a good reason for it, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, you gotta you gotta pick your points to to put your you know draw the line in the sand and saying this is where we're, this is where we're standing here. And uh, you know, you can come with us or not. Uh, we could win or we can fail, but it uh, whichever happens, you're already good because you you made you made a choice and you made a decision to go with what you felt was right. Yeah. And in, in in music and in life. I found that, that that's worked for us and myself more than it than it's failed, you know. So right. uh, you get that positive reinforcement of of and also the experience of it doesn't work out all the time. But you know what? That's how we felt. We made a call. We can live with that. That's cool. Mm. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, we, we've talked a good bit about kind of sonics and and the composition side of, of music, um, but by the time you guys put out your second full album, Dirt. Um, a lot of those songs in that record, I mean, Down in a Hole is a song that you wrote for your girlfriend at the time. Yeah. 
Brewster that we mentioned a moment ago was a song really from your your father's perspective of his experiences. Uh, Wood, you know, was your tribute to Andrew Wood, who had passed away. So we're talking about things that are intensely personal, uh, intensely vulnerable and really like from your own perspective. So lyrically in terms of writing, you know, you have some writers that kind of create a character and they, and they just sort of write the way uh, a novelist or a short story writer might, but it seems like you're someone when it comes to lyrics that even from early on really wanted to kind of write from your own perspective, your own voice and your own vulnerability in a way. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think I've written songs uh, in both methods that you described there, you know, very to the point and and very subject oriented uh, and experience oriented. And also uh, I've written a lot of songs where where I have all of those elements, but it's put more uh, into into a character or a or a or or a script, you know, maybe not something that's actual in fact, but but. but uh, is laid down in a way where it, where it it's still it's still personable and real in the story and uh, uh, you know some of those early moments uh, and the, and those songs those songs were really really big you know that you mentioned and uh, 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 you know that's important to me and those people are important to me you know and yeah. uh, um, uh, I'm I'm glad that I was uh, that I was able to kind of honor them in a tune or whatever but but those are examples of of you know being an artist can be really really uncomfortable man uh you know because you you totally are ripping you're ripping yourself open uh to the core and that's a really beautiful and powerful thing and that's going to connect to people but it also that space is open eternally for anybody to poke at you know so uh it's a very brave thing to do to open yourself up that way and uh and I think that it is necessary, uh, whichever way you're going about it. If you're laying out a confession, or or if you're even if you're writing in character, but but drawing from a, a personal, uh, emotional uh, uh, well, you know, if, uh, all of those things. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I, I think I think you gotta. And I think you know, with with most writers that you talk talk to, you have to. You have to write what you know. You have to draw on what you know, you know, mm. and uh, uh, that's going to translate to someone because it's human, you know. And that's why we, that's why we love music. That's why we love films and books and you know stories. And, and it's a, uh, it's a communication of, of all things that you experience in life. And it also makes you feel maybe not so alone because somebody else uh, has thought, felt, or ex- experienced some of those things too. And even if it's not particularly uh, uh, exactly for for somebody else, those all of those elements can be internalized and and be made personal to somebody. So it feels like it's theirs, you know. Yeah, yeah. How important is it to you? I mean, because the nature of fandom is often that people will then take those songs that you've written about intensely personal experiences, and then they say, "Well, this is my song, and it's about my life now." 
as a listener. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, and I know in some senses that must be intensely rewarding. And then someone comes up and says, hey, my wife walked down the aisle to Rooster. And you're like, that wasn't the idea, but okay. Like, yeah, <laughs> but are those... that's, that's, that's all cool. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's all cool. You know, like, uh, there's a point, the, the writing process, the recording process, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a real chunk of time where it's really just yours, you know, and you, you and your, you and your, your pals that you're making the music with the creative group that's making the record. And that's kind of fun because it's secret. It's really, really tight. It's really personal. And, you know, you're trying to make the re best record you can for yourself. You know, like I always use the, I always use the kind of, uh, uh, situation in my mind that, you know, like if, I'm writing for the kid in me that's not in this band, you know what I mean? And, but it's still me. If I wasn't in this band, uh, would, would, would I like this record? Would I like this song? And so we're trying to satisfy ourselves and make a record that, that means something to us and something that's personal to us and is ours. And when you release it, it's not yours anymore. You know, it, it, part of it is, but now it's anybody that it speaks to. And it's cool, you know? Um, it's amazing to me, you know, uh, I got that, you know, we were talking about, we were talking about Elton earlier and my earliest influences. And, and I remember that realization of just how magical that is that, you know, some, some dude from England, you know, <laughs> who I will, who I will never meet, you know, uh, I will never, I don't have a lot in common with, but like, you know, he, he recorded this, he wrote this, he recorded this and he, printed it onto this little piece of plastic or a disc, you know, and put it, sent it out in the world and I got it and I, and I mm. connected to it and it's got life and warmth and, you know, takes me on a trip and inspires me, you know, and, mm. uh, makes me happy. It makes me sad, whatever. Uh, I always got that, that it's just such a magical thing. You put it on this, you know, uh, you take all that, that life and that, that magic and you put it into this inanimate object, put it on, put it in a machine and then turn it on and uh and it comes back to life again it's like it's like something that lives out there in the matrix you uh, know what i mean and, right and it's and it's always there it's always there for somebody to stumble across and make a connection to that's that's cool man i, I, I dug that i dug that idea and i got that made that kind of uh you know connection in my head of of just how cool that was uh when i was a kid and uh uh, I'm still keenly aware of, of how, how awesome that is, you know, and, and, and that makes me, makes me sort of the driving forces for why I do what I do and yeah. still want to do it. You know, so. I mean, it has to be a, kind of a trippy thing to, to have had that experience that so many of us music fans have had, but then also to provide that experience. I mean, for me, uh, when I listen to No Excuses, it's like I'm back in freshman year of college, you know, like remembering the, those times with those friends. It, like it, it takes me back and it has that, you know, it, it's one of those magical songs that I think a lot of people of our generation, like as soon as you hear it, it's like you're like, oh, yes, you just you, you connect with that. It's all right.
love to hear a bit about, you know, the creation of that song because so many times we just take songs for granted that yeah they they exist but you know that's a song that you you wrote you you created it it's got you know a, a story behind it and i'd love to hear a bit about how that one came together this one particular uh session uh we planned you know like we we had had the experience with sap between facelift and dirt and we thought we'd do the same thing uh, since since we'd already established that easter egg of sap and put it in the stores for people to find that would make another acoustic bass EP between the next record. And, uh, um, the guys were like, don't, you know, don't, don't, don't write anything. Let's, let's, let, let's, uh, let's go in and see, you know, see what we can come up with. And, the, and I think the guys have expressed some interest to, to, to being a little more involved in the writing and, and uh, I'm like, okay, cool. And, uh, I didn't really come up. I didn't have anything walking in. I think no excuses might've been one of the only, <laughs> The only thing that I did have rattling around my head and we showed up day one and everybody looks at me and, and, and goes, what do you got? <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? You told me not to write anything. <laughs> you told me not to write anything that we were going to, you guys were going to write some songs. We're going to do this. So we just had to make it up on the spot. Kind of like that, you know, the going back to the Beatles documentary, it was, it was written and recorded in seven days, you know? So wow. None of that stuff really existed except for maybe the idea of that. And I think, I think maybe, maybe the, the bare bones, uh, uh, version of, uh, uh don't follow. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I think I wrote, wrote in Ireland at the end of a tour when we were really fucking tired and homesick. And, uh, but that was it, you know, like one and a half songs. So, so right. uh, uh, it was, it, it was a really cool, it, cool uh process uh because I'd, we'd never done it that way before and we just pulled it out of our ass and made a pretty cool pretty cool record uh in about seven days yeah you know when when i kind of pulled the camera back and this is going to connect to something that you just said but when, when i'm looking at, at the records you, you know your solo albums and and the band albums and sort of the time in, in between and sometimes there's like a, a two-year three-year gap or, or longer um and the the question that you sort of began to hint at a little bit in terms of writing in between projects and and how much writing you do to to prepare a bit, you know, in referencing that Beatles documentary, it's, it's funny to me that they go in with a, a few weeks to get something together, and it's like anybody got any songs? Um, yeah. Are you someone that is writing, you know, kind of day in and day out, just collecting a line here and a line there, or are you someone that when you see a deadline approaching? You're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really get, you know, start to grind and, and crank out some songs. Uh, I think, I think that, uh, I think in the early days, I was constantly, constantly doing stuff. You know, like on my four track or, or uh, into one of those little, one of those little handheld uh, mini cassette players or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I still do that today, but the frequency is probably not, not not as intense as it was because that was my entire existence back then and uh you know you grow up and you know you 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 get a little bit older and you have you have other things in your life as well as music back then that's all i had (laughs) (laughs) so uh uh and and that's all we all had you know we all you know we all uh we all shared and shared a rehearsal room that we lived in and then moved into a house we were all together and like you know the it was it was 100 percent of the existence so but the method is the same like uh, when I'm sitting around, uh, you know, uh, I could be sitting around watching TV and I hear something in my head or I'm playing guitar and come stumble across a riff. 
uh, I'm constantly cataloging whenever that happens. Mm. So if something something makes my ears perk up, I'll record it. A process I've gotten in the habit of from those early days is to always get it down because there's nothing fucking worse. Oh. <laughs> there's nothing nothing worse, and I've had a few of these, and it it really sucks knowing that you had something great and you can't remember it. Like, yeah. oh, fuck, how did how did I do that? You know, so. <laughs> So, uh, uh, you know, having your having your Pro Tools rig, or your tape rig, or you know, uh, one of the, the one of the positive things of technology, having your iPhone in your hand, you know, being able to just record shit right on the fly, uh, and uh, uh, you know, I'll have uh, I'll, I'll basically collect and catalog until it comes time, like you say, for that deadline to happen. Okay, it's time to time to get to work and. Uh, and then you go to the next phase, which is which is writing and demoing, and uh, and that's when you sit through all of those ideas. And this record that I just did is an, is an example of that. You know, it's collected ideas, uh, uh, you know, from from all sorts of eras, and also stuff that just happened while while I was in the process. You know. Yeah, maybe once and for all, we can just give this bit of advice to any songwriters who are listening. If you're drifting off to sleep. You're not going to remember that idea tomorrow morning. You're, you <laughs> nope. have to nope. put it down right now. Nope. Yep. I've done a. I've done that a bunch. You know, whether you. I, I used to keep a. Uh, I used to keep a pad by the bed. You know, so, and the, and those times. Those are times when you, your brain's in kind of a kind of a cool space when you're just going down or when you're just waking up. You know, maybe you dreamt something or whatever, yeah. and, and uh, uh, put that put that down or like. You know, if you if if you feel something is hey, that's cool. Where the hell did that come from? That yeah. you might want to re- revisit that. Just get it down. You know, just get it down. You know, you you mentioned before. You know, sifting through the ideas you've collected over time when when you are meeting kind of deadline time to make a record. You know, and and you mentioned your 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 friendship with Tyler and his sort of you know the vital role that he played as a producer talk a bit about you know as someone who's who's operated in a band context so much of your life now you know when you're making a solo record the importance of that team to kind of tell you hey this is good this is worth exploring this is worth finishing this is not quite done you know uh, how do you sort of find those people to to trust kind of project to project as a solo artist yeah i mean i i I think the I think the dynamic is the same because it takes a village, man. You know what I mean? It takes uh, every every record, every record that I've been involved with uh, is a lot of people, uh, even outside the group that you're recording with. But but taking myself outside of the band that that I'm most uh, uh, used to and familiar with recording with, uh, uh, writing and recording with. Um, the dynamic is the same, you know, I mean, there's, there's the players, there's, there's Tyler, Fig, Joe Barisi. Those are, those are, those are some pretty good guys, uh, that I've, that I've made music with in the past. And, and I respect them all, uh, as artists and, and, uh, musicians themselves. So, uh, you know, you can kind of trust in that at, at a certain level, you know, and, and you just go with what feels right. You know, uh, I, I, I felt, you know, there's a lot of times, there's a lot of times in life, uh, you know, we're our own worst enemy and, and the best, you know, the best thing ever is getting, getting out of your own way. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, in a recording situation and a writing situation and, and, you know, you could probably ask anybody I work with, I don't always like when somebody tells me that I'm wrong, you know what I mean? Or that <laughs> my idea could be better or maybe it's not that good, 
but I respect it. You know what I mean? And, and you need that. Um, just, just the, just the fact of being a little off kilter or being poked and prodded a little bit. To, I think you can do that better. You know what I mean? Is uh, I, I, I need that, and I think that all artists uh, benefit from that because it's not that, not that maybe where what you had wasn't good. But you're trying to make it as good as you can get it, you know. And and sometimes sometimes uh, you're kind of locked into to your view a little bit uh, too much on stuff. And and uh, you know, Fig does that for me. Tyler does that for me. Joe Joe Barizzi, uh did that for me on this record as well. Uh, you know, uh, we we were pretty much done with the record. And uh, Joe was like, you know, I I think we need more musicians on this record. You know, this feels kind of like a kind of like a uh you know like the old like a 70s kind of record and i think you should instead of like having a set band i think you should have a bunch of different musicians that fit the songs you know and he he called up he called up abe laboreal jr and and uh and brought abe in and and uh, late in the process i i asked duff to come in uh james lomenzo had recorded a bunch of bass for us on the record and he did a great job but but Duff's a friend, and he has a certain feel, and that kind of fit with the music better, you know. And mm-hmm. Paul figured, Paul called up uh, Vincent Jones on the keys. All the all three of those guys were super late additions in the process, and wouldn't have happened if we didn't have the COVID shutdown because I would have I would have finished the record, mm-hmm. and it would have been a really good record. It's not that it wouldn't wouldn't have been, but I think it was a it turned into a deeper richer experience because of those three musicians that came into the process and mm. and again not being comfortable you know like okay well let's let's tear this thing apart and see if we can make it better and, and it did you know yeah um it's always fun uh it, it, it it's tri- it, it's trippy like the obstacles that are put in front of you uh uh it's part of the it's part of the thing is trying to figure out and overcome that you know and and also not the not to be too comfortable all the time, you know, yeah, yeah. in that process. It's okay to be uncomfortable, to live, live in, in, in uh, live in a state of uh, slight agitation <laughs> when you're, uh, when you're creating, because it makes you think different. You know, you think with a different part of your brain and you're being challenged, you know? Yeah. And uh, more often than not, more often than not, when you're, when you're being challenged, a lot of those ideas that you, that you felt strongly about, they stand up. But then there's a couple of other ones that you feel just as passionately about and, and, and you get challenged on. And then after the fact, you're like, you were totally right. It's yeah. way better now. You know? yeah. And it's cool. The goal is the same. We're all trying to make the best record possible. So any, any group of musicians or producers or, or uh, you know, uh, collaborators, the goal is always the same. It's just trying to make the best song you can make. And then, uh, you know, secondly, make make a body of work that's an album you know yeah. that fits together you know well i listened to songs on your new record like siren song and had to know and greg pucciato is singing a harmony really it's like a, a two vocal part situation
as Paul mentioned earlier, harmony has always been uh, a hallmark of your songs. And, you know, whether it be Lane Staley and Allison Chains or, or William Duvall in the current lineup of the band, um, you know, you've always kind of challenged the notion of like the lead singer, you know, because sometimes Lane would sing lead. Sometimes there'd be songs like Grind or Heaven Beside You where you sang lead and, and Lane sang harmony. Sometimes it was kind of sure. hard to tell who the lead guy, you know, they're, it's really a shared vocal thing. And it comes back to that kind of Beatles thing or or even Everly Brothers really thing where it's it like. It really does. I think it all yeah. starts there. Yeah, it's like there's, there's not there, really, there, there's not there really so a lead singer. Uh, that I admire that that are based off that blueprint, but but yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that that's 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 the that's the lodestar. That's where it all starts from, and 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 what a what a what a great place to 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 start from. Uh, yeah. Every one of those guys could sing. Every one of the uh, the uh, when they sang together, it was it was a thing. You know what I mean? It wasn't just one or the other. Uh, it was a kind of a. Uh, I always say the be- the best way I can describe it is one plus one equals three. Yeah. You know two. You know, you add those two together, and it becomes a thir- uh, a thing that's even bigger than both of them right. or together. So, um, you know, like a process and like a, uh, a style that I guess I, I I created with with Lane. Yeah. And uh, and and we made some really good music that way, and it became uh, it's one of the most identifiable features, I guess, of what we do. Yeah. Uh, and 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 my writing style, and it's something that feels comfortable to me, and. Uh, and uh, it, it's really, it's really affirming, I guess, that that that, that, that there's a thing there uh, mm-hmm. that I was able to continue with another talented guy in William, and we and and continue that language, but but enhance enhance it. You know, obviously he's a he's a different person, and working with Greg is that's is very similar in that way too. Even though the dynamic is a little uh, a little shifted, but but uh, but. Uh, he he fits really nicely into it. You know, he's a really talented, really talented singer. He does a lot of different, uh, uh, a lot of different styles. Has a lot of different voices. You know, Lane Lane had that. You know, with a lot of different voices within, within uh, one body. You yeah. know, and uh, uh, it's it, it it's cool to see, even with different folk, di- different people, uh, the language is still. Uh, it, it's it, it's it's still speakable, you know what I mean. Even right. though the the players are different, so so I guess that's more important than the than the component of the parts, myself included. Yeah. You know? So. Well, yeah, and I was gonna say, I think it speaks a lot to your songwriting sensibility that you are yeah. very much a person who wants to serve the song because it, it takes a certain. Um, uh, setting aside of ego, you know, cause I think there's some people that would say, well, I'm going to sing the lead and I'm also going to sing my own harmony part rather than, you know, bring in a, a different voice to do that part. It shows almost like a, a joy in the collaborative aspect of bringing songs together, whether than than needing to like have the entire spotlight for yourself the whole time. And I think um, that, that kind of love of the music uh, comes across in a way that's different from somebody who wants to sort of like, look at me, look at me all the time, you know? Sure. Yeah. I'm cool being part of the, part of the collective, you know what I mean? And, uh, uh, I'm glad that that is, uh, not just an aspect, it's a feature, you know, it's a feature, you know, in the music. So, uh, it's, it's really, it's really versatile and it's open to, it's open for, to, to be performed in that way, uh, by, by, by anyone really. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, the uh, latest album is called Brighton. Uh, we've barely scratched the surface on your amazing songwriting output over the years, but we want to uh, encourage folks to go and dig back into that back catalog and even more importantly, check out that new record. It's very cool. A lot of interesting influences and a lot of different types of, uh, of sonics that you're incorporating there that I think uh, if if folks love the old stuff, they're going to be satisfied. And if they want to be challenged, they're going to love that too. Cause you, you've really like pulled together a special group of songs there. So, uh, we really appreciate you spending some time with us today and, and sharing a little bit about your process. Uh, good talking with you guys. And, uh, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do, and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.